Hello, welcome to Process. My name's Stephen Walsh. This week, we're going to be talking to Pat Mills about his rich and colourful life in comics. Hello, Pat. Hi. So you got your start in comics, I think I'm correct in saying, IPC magazines? Uh, no, I started with uh, DC Thompson's in ah, Scotland. Right. Uh, where I was a sub-editor on a uh, romantic comic stroke magazine called Romeo. And I worked on that with... John Wagner, who, of course, as you know, went on to create Judge Dredd. But you started to get around Romeo. That's quite, we started, a, quite a transition. And it's, a, and it's an unlikely and almost unhealthy uh, thought, really. Uh, <laughs> you know, John and I, like, we're well, like 20, 21, 22, working on Romeo. But it was aimed at uh, teenagers, and we weren't that far off teenagers ourselves. So that's, that's how it worked. Mm. And you worked for IPC magazines after that? Subsequently, yes. I mean, what happened was I, I worked on uh, Romeo and after a year I went freelance and I submitted scripts to IPC magazines to a whole spectrum of uh, different comics. Some more attractive than others, but for probably familiar names, Lion, Valiant, Girls Comics so-called fun comics, uh, like uh, <laughs> Core, Wizard and Chips. I'm sorry if anyone grew up on uh, Wizard and Chips, etc. But uh, speaking as an insider, I have a slightly different perspective. It does I, seem that the amount of fun that the readers got out of it was in direct, inverse, <laughs> to the, the amount of fun the creators had working on the there, there, Yeah, there, there are, yeah, I, I have some negative thoughts on that, which I don't have to share with those who, <laughs> who have such fond memories. And it built up very quickly... And John was still a staff member on Romeo, and we had enough work for both of us. And then he joined me as a freelance, and we both worked together on these things for somewhere between six months and a year. Two uh, very feisty individuals working in a garden shed, which is, uh, <laughs> doesn't actually bear thinking about from, from this vantage point of time. And uh, then we both went our separate ways, and uh, John went down to London, I think, to edit a comic called Sandy for Girls. I carried on freelancing, and then later I came down to London and worked on a variety of comics as well, um, So at, both for IPC. So that's how we ended up there. And then from there, with uh, a pretty successful track record, we started what could be called the, the male comic revolution. In other words, we, we started with Battle, which we did together. Then I went on to do Action Comic, and finally 2000 AD. That's the Reader's Digest version. Yes, that's the, a nice sort of first act. <laughs> a quick summary, yeah. yeah. In terms of, of DC Thompson and, and IPC at the time, editorially, as far as I understand, it was quite stuffy, stayed. It was a, a lot of people who were very sort of stuck in their ways. To... That, that, that's absolutely correct. And I think, I think that's often a tradition in publishing... I don't think we should ever assume, oh, but it's different now. No, it's not different now, uh, not pointing the finger in any particular direction. But I think staid is, 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 is almost the, the norm. And, OK, it's a different staid back then to the staid now. But that, that is the norm. And I suppose the only difference is that there was a window of opportunity and one could get in there. And if it hadn't been John and I, it would have been someone else, I think. And I think windows of opportunity are probably more difficult now, judging by the frustration so many people who speak to me about, hey, I tried, tried getting my script in, or I tried doing this and that. Either there was a stronger window of opportunity, or perhaps also 
both John and I have very powerful personalities. <laughs> and uh, maybe there was a bit of that as well. I don't know. There was uh, a combined force. There well. was a combined force and it was the times. I mean, we're talking the early 70s. And I think from whatever it was, what, 1965, 1966 onwards, probably through to the end of the 70s, there was a cultural revolution. There was, and change was accepted and, and encouraged. And we perhaps were just in the right place at the right time. Culture and society were more fluid yeah, than it had been um, for a generation. And, you know, there, there, there was a... Re- uh, the other thing as well, um, which perhaps seems rather odd now, but... If you went to work for IPC magazines, who after all produced everything, they were the world's biggest publisher. Uh, and of course, they were also the world's biggest, or what about the world's biggest, but certainly Britain's biggest comic publisher. They published no end of stuff. If you'd worked for DC Thompson's, it was a bit like working for the BBC. It, was, it meant that you had been trained in a certain way and that you knew certain things that perhaps a complete outsider wouldn't know or, or wouldn't have those skills. I mean, it was like being in the army or what I imagine as being <laughs> in the army. Uh, in other words, they, they kind of broke you down and remoulded you. And I mean, to give you just a, a very small example, you might come up with a title for um, the leading letter on the letters page and the editor would say, that's not a very good title. Give me six more titles. Now, that's not really a problem, but when you're 20 or 21, you think, what, what do they want? What, what's wrong with my title? And then after a while, you start thinking very commercially. And I actually think that's a good thing because you want to reach a lot of people. So you discover things which, and I understand and follow those rules even today. I, to give you an example of uh, something similar today, if you're doing a blog and you have a title which has a question mark in it, right? More people will read it, statistically, because you know, obviously I study these things, I do my own blogs, than if you don't have a question. You know that there are exceptions, of course, but people say, what's he going on about? What's that question? Right. You know, why, you know... It intrigues rather than... Yeah, so it draws you in. Yeah. So, I mean, these are fundamental rules that are not enshrined sufficiently in comics, They're enshrined to a certain extent, I think, in American comics, almost by default, Marvel and DC in particular. Once you step outside there, they may not be there. And these are rules that either I learnt at DC Thompson's, but actually I learnt more subsequently. The only way any of us learn, which is unfortunately the hard way, in other (laughs) words, when you screwed up enough times, you say, okay, that didn't work. And I'll give you a really basic one. Uh, And I've occasionally been guilty of breaking this myself and generally paid a price. If you want a story to succeed, have the hero's name in the title. Charlie's War, Slain, Judge Dredd, whatever, Spider-Man. There are exceptions. There are one, for example, would be Flash on 2000 AD. But it was never a number one story. It was a number two story, a very successful number two story. If it had had, if it was called whatever would have been the equivalent of Godzilla, it probably would have been a number one story. And that's a painful lesson. And, and it's not even something I'm saying is a good thing. Occasionally say, God, what's wrong with you readers? This is a great story. Why are you going for that story over there, which conforms to all these rules rather than this rather more avant-garde story? But what you have to recognise those things. It's almost like the opposite of the, the point about the blog, where 
with the blog intriguing people is a good way to draw them in. Whereas yeah. with a title of a story, presenting who the character is, giving them that snippet to sort of work on, yeah. it almost works to, in, to intrigue them in that way. And then we, we want to. We the harsh truth is we prefer heroes to situations. We we want a hero or an anti-hero, as the case might be. So a situational story, which arguably flesh was, it's a, it's a great situation. It's about farming dinosaurs in the Cretaceous. But the hero is not as focused on. And OK, the readers still love it, but you pay a price and you have to accept that. And, and it's hard sometimes because you think, well, actually, that was a better story than something else I wrote. But it doesn't matter. We love heroes. In terms of your development as writer as well, You've been on the record as saying that your time working on girls' comics for DC Thompson and IPC had a huge influence on you. Mm, yeah, it, and it's a really fond memory. And thankfully, there are now some very positive moves towards some girls' comics being pub, uh, reprinted. It's still too early to, to talk about officially, but I think I can say that much, that that is happening uh, probably around Misty. Uh, one of my stories and another one I shall recommend. But it's early days to confirm that. I have great affectionate memories of girls' comics. And the thing is, rather like with boys' comics, you can look at some boys' comics and you think, my God, they're rubbish, you know. And you can look at the same on girls' comics and you can actually laugh your head off at the ridiculous nature. It's probably like anything. There's maybe 15, 20% that's brilliant and the other 80% is either rubbish or so-so or in between. But the 20% that was brilliant on girls' comics, I would be so admiring of the, the sensitivity, the depth. And there's a great sense of regret for me because uh, there's a, I mean... Editing and creating comics is actually a painful business. It's a, it's a strain on your family, on yourself and so on. So I did three comics and I walked away from actually doing Misty on a day-to-day -day basis. But it's still a regret because I like to think if I had done it, it would, be, uh, it would have been a walk in the park by comparison with 2000 AD. And I like to think it would have still been there today. And there would be the female equivalent audience and male equivalent uh, and male and guys like Misty as well. I mean, stories about creepy horror stories are just as popular with, with, with guys. And I like to think there would be that kind of audience that, that we have for male comics and for 2000 AD. And I, I think I saw after 2000 AD what we could do with girls comics to take them that one stage further because they were still a bit stuck uh, mainly in terms of too many pictures on a page, uh, the pacing of the stories uh, was sometimes rather, what shall we say, um, uh, a bit old fashioned. And sometimes the art was what you might call front seat of the stalls. And I think what I took from fandom and from American comics was that cooler sensibility, which you, you might see in, say, Chaikin's work or Steranko, I mean, they were around at the time and it was bringing that kind of art style in, obviously, with, with artists who knew it even better than I did. And I'd like to have brought that into girls' comics and it, it's a big regret, but, you know, it, it, it would have been a personal crusade that would have cost me in terms of my, my social life, my personal life. And, hey, you know, it's only a comic, as Archie Goodwin <laughs> used to say. Keep telling yourself... You know, six times a day or more. It's only a comic. It's only a comic. 
If only we could. <laughs> <laughs> so having done the girls' comics, yeah. then moving over into war comics and yeah. boys' adventure comics, what were the, the sort of lessons, examples you, you sort of carried over with you from there? Um, well, there were some harsh lessons for a start uh, because there are big differences between girls uh, uh, in terms of what they like and boys. And I didn't know that. And the only way I found that out was the hard way. I'll give you one brief example. Um, girls love mysteries. If you have a mystery story that's well set up and you've got a, a locked room and a locked desk and there's a drawer that's locked and there's something in there and the headmistress is after it, girls love that and they will look, they can't wait to find out next week. Now, you can do the male equivalent of that. So we had a story called Terror Beyond the Bamboo Curtain. What's this evil Japanese guy doing? And, and so on. It, was, it wasn't unsuccessful, but the broad message is guys don't give a shit about mysteries. They don't, they don't care. You know what I mean? That's not what drives them. Girls love mysteries. So that was one of many harsh lessons I learned. But, okay, that's on the negative side. On the positive side, you learnt about characterization, about emotion. You have to be careful with that as well. Yeah, I mean, Charlie's War, which is actually quite late in the day in battle. It was maybe three, four, five years on. But that has emotion, which I picked up from, from, from doing girls' comics. And you might probably find the equivalent somewhere down the line in something like Blazing Combat. But for the most part, you wouldn't see that same emotional structure uh, that largely came from, from, from girls' comics. So that was one of the things that was, that was very positive... But what happened, I, I started with that premise, and, and obviously we, we had a lot of good things going in battle. But increasingly I actually discovered something that I think, even now, I'm choosing my words with great care, because it is, is slightly, has a slight criticism, again I'm choosing my words with great care, of the readers themselves. That what I discovered increasingly through battle, through action, and then into 2000 AD was that the readers seemed to prefer a hero who was not, not characterless per se, but not showing much emotion. And you can see where this is going, right? So this is the complete opposite of, of a, say, a girl's comic story. So, okay, I learned some things from it, and I brought them into, into male comics, uh, particularly on battle and, and, and action. But by 2008... I was actually studying the feedback from the readers and realising we actually had to create something that had never been created before. And that's why probably 2000 AD is, you know, was, or was at least unique it, because it was saying something new. So it was actually saying that the readers, uh, a crude way of putting it, and that's not unfair, is they liked hard bastards. In other words, they didn't want someone who was going to agonise, which many superheroes do, and, and do it very well, you know, Spider-Man, Stan Lee, and so on. And, that, and that's actually almost a girl's comic in its very early form. And, and I actually like them for that reason. But for the audience I was aiming for, I suddenly realised that, OK, in effect, I was having to reinvent things. Or perhaps, perhaps more fairly... It's not that I was reinventing or even creating something new. I was actually figuring out what the readers wanted. And it wasn't always a good thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> In other words, 
they, so the publisher would say, why are you doing this story? And I said, because that's what the readers actually want. They mm. want this. They, they want this tough, miserable, unsmiling guy who wears a helmet all the time and never takes his helmet off, doesn't have a private life. That's actually what they want. And there'd be a kind of, well, okay, you've, you've got a proven track record, you must know. So it wasn't necessarily me creating so much as the readers creating, thinking, okay, this is what you want, guys. <laughs> it's not necessarily what I want. And I'll give you an example of that. And um, say on Judge Dredd. Now, I, and you can see it in martial law where there is humour and comedy. Now, having played a, a very large role in the development of Judge Dredd, because in the early days, John was quite understandably quite uh, annoyed with, uh, he, he backed away from the thing. So I, I felt, well, I, I really want to show a human side to things. And uh, so I actually liked, uh, in the first instance, him having a, an Italian uh, landlady, Maria, who used to worry about him. I worry about you out there on the streets. <laughs> this guy's a psychopath. You know? <laughs> and um, I, I'm not saying that that should be an ongoing process, but I like that kind of aspect. Um, I think there were readers who liked it. I think the, the majority, if not all the readers, now would be saying, yeah, stuff Maria, you know. <laughs> no, you were wrong, get rid of her. But that wasn't always the case. And I like that human side. I think even that was arguably, um, not a mistake, but it isn't where the readers really wanted. I, I know certainly one or two Judge Dredd artists say to me, now, I hated Maria. And I'm saying, well, I'm sorry you did, but I liked her and that's what I wanted. And, and I was running the show at the time. Uh, another good example would be John's wonderful creation, Walter the Wobot, uh, who, who I absolutely love the idea of that. I love the fact that, you know, John would come in and he'd say to me, well, we're going to have this one where Walter's bought him a stick to, uh, so he can beat Walter without... Um, without, uh, you know, on, uh, hurting his hand or something. And I thought that was hilarious. And, and to be fair, I think the readers did too. I think that was very... But that was a humanistic bit. And I think at some point, John obviously decided Walter had uh, run his course. But I, I like that side of it. And I even like the fact that I can remember some parent writing in and saying, oh, God, you know, you've got... Walter is heading for the crusher next week. And if that happens... My little boy, because they were young kids reading this, you know. I was saying, if you do that, my little boy would be really upset, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, of course, I, I'd enjoy that, you know, the, 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 the thought of, well, you know, it's, it, it's, it is a comic book after all. And um, so there were these, I think it's fair to say that there were, there have been probably a number of streams and counter streams in 2000 AD. And the ones that have won are, are the ones that have won. They're the winners. But they are not the only ones. And I think there were winners and losers. And I think we probably, over the years, we, we've lost some readers because of that. It, but that's inevitable. You can't please everyone all the time. With Maria and Walter as well, it seems like a way to introduce character to the strip without affecting the central character as well. As you say, the, the readers want the central character to be almost like this blank slate. So you've got, to, you've got to find a way to do it. And... And obviously there are other solutions as well. So John, I think, subsequently um, came up with really making the city a character and making people in the city quite emotional, you know? Uh, I mean, the city had the emotion that Dread couldn't have, and, and that's a unique solution, which arguably 
breaks all the traditional rules of drama. But this was what we were... Dis- I mean, what it was, really, was discovering what the readers wanted. And, I mean, ultimately, this was to lead to... Um, a break that's never really been chronicled and it's almost too painful I think even now to talk about but we were very reader feedback led so just as today you can have instant feedback with uh, with computers well back then we had the primitive equivalent of that with the vote chart and these were no joke because the editor would actually ring you up rang Kevin and I up uh, on occasion and said that latest episode of Nemesis was not as popular as the ones before. So we'd be driven by these bloody vote charts. <laughs> and, and it was, I mean, I was part of that process and I owe my success to it. But it doesn't stop me swearing about it. Because <laughs> it's like, hey, come on, guys. That last episode was bloody brilliant. It was beautifully drawn by Kevin. And it just, it, the one I'm thinking of is Great Uncle Bar, where you've got these... Uh, It's a talking head one where he's talking to his uncle, where he doesn't happen to be running around killing people and having sword fights. And you think, come on, is that all you really want? So we would curse the readers on occasion. (laughs) It's almost like the the, the readers are as stayed and stuffy sometimes as the the sort of editorial. Well, yeah, and and they were, there was, if you like, that temptation, that that pressure to almost dumb down. Because the irony is, as, as everyone knows, you know, to write a Vertigo-style story of talking heads takes a lot more work than two people running around fighting each other with swords. <laughs> it, 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 you, can, you can write that in half the time. So it's quite galling for that to happen. And, and we'd all of us have this. But these vote charts were very religiously followed, and I think rightly so. And then somewhere down the line, probably, oh, I don't know, there, there's different starting points for, for this Somewhere down the line, the voice of fandom became more important than the voice of the readers. And there were casualties on that. You know, in, I mean, aesthetically, I think the fandom choices were better, but we lost readers on it. And, uh, and, I, and I think that that was, that was to be regretted. I think in an ideal world, you, could tr- you, you would try and keep both. Because I would say to the pub, I would even ask about the publisher, even this was while I was still working on 2000, because I didn't really know about fandom. And, I, and, and I'd say, what about all these fans who seem to be coming out of the woodwork and seem to be very interested in 2080? These were all guys who were reading Pillot and Metal Hell and, uh, and Warrior and, uh, and so on. And he said, and I think his words were, were real words of wisdom, he said, Go for your mainstream audience. The fans will follow anyway. They'll complain, but they will still follow. And I think that was very, very good advice. And I think, you know, the, the, the trick, I think, is to balance the two. And it's a hard one. And not everyone gets it right. And we didn't always get it right, which is sad. In terms of the titles you developed as well, talking of uh, fandom, yeah. it was at a time where you have the emergence of of fanzines, the first conventions, the first specialist comic shops in, in the UK. Was that useful to you in terms of, of discovering uh, a way to, to talk to readers and, and to discover new talent, which was a huge part of, of what um, you did? It was, it was a very useful way to discover new talent. That is unequivocal. I think the conventions and things have been going for maybe two, three, four, five. They were fairly well established, maybe five years before us. Things like dark they were and golden eyed and all those kind of places so that that had been there 
Nick Landau, the publisher of Titan Books, had just finished film school and he saw that 2000 AD was different and he, you know, he wanted a job on 2000 AD and, I, and uh, so I looked at his portfolio of fanzines and I said, well, this is all great. And I think I said something like, okay, I'll get you an interview with John Sanders, the publisher. I said, but you're going to have to play down the fandom thing. Now, this is probably not understood today because... But back then, and it was very justified, fandom was, it was a negative word because what it meant was that if you were a fan and you were working on a comic, you might say, oh, that's a lift from Staranko and, and, you know, I think that art style isn't very good. And the only concern of the editors was, is, is this comic going to sell? Not whether, you know, this is uh, based on an Archie Goodwin story or whatever it is. And... So I, I, I said to him, I said, OK, I'll introduce you to John and we'll see if, you know, if, if John, I'll give it, give it my thumbs up. And um, I said, but the, the main thing is play down the, the fanzine thing. In other words, something like don't mention the Silver Surfer, something like that. <laughs> and uh, and he was he played down that aspect. But at the same time, John Sanders could see that this, this was a guy with a, uh, with a lot of energy and ideas. In other words, here's someone else who can this was my feeling, was this is someone who can bring something new to this industry, which was dying on its feet, not because the readers weren't there, but because this is the curse of mainstream, that people who are fan-orientated in, in comics, either as consumers, writers, artists, they're enthusiasts, they love it. Now, the tragedy is that in mainstream, the majority of people just saw it as a job, and they didn't care. And I would include myself as part of mainstream and I did care and I actually thought well I, why am I the only one who cares in other words I'm not into fandom particularly I see myself even now as a mainstream writer who can appeal to more than one audience and all these other guys all they want to do is get their redundancy right. so the reason mainstream crashed has got nothing to do with demographics or anything like that it was to do with the fact that the majority, I'd say 90% of the people who are mainstream just didn't give a damn. And there would be the odd exception like myself and John Wagner and so on. But the majority of people just, it was just a job. And if they got made redundant, well, who cares? But you see, I was always freelance. So I'm only as good as my next story. <laughs> that makes you hungry. And, uh, keeps you on your toes. Yeah, keep, keeps you on your toes. Um, <laughs> Whereas I suppose if I, if I thought, well, if they, if they get rid of me, I'll get paid redundancy. And, and that was a real curse that, that they were resting on their laurels and they were just going through the motions. They, there were very few people who actually had a passion um, for comics. And the one or two who did often were influenced really by what I would call American comics, not necessarily superheroes, but they weren't actually thinking, well, what is it that the British readers want? And I mean, British readers are weird. I mean, you know, we're neither American, we're not European, we are unique, we've got bits of them all. And my God, you... And I think all I really did, uh, my particular skill, um, which doesn't actually sound like me generally, but I actually listened. I listened really carefully to what they wanted. And every so often I'd try something new, based on what they were telling me. I'd read their letters, and that's how I managed to make it work, because, okay, this is what you want. And, and our audience wasn't necessarily fa a fan audience. It was a strange hybrid, which I think is still there today in Britain. 
I mean, a good example would be, for example, say people now in their 40s who say buy a rebellion collection of Ballardinelli. Now, Ballardinelli is by no criteria a fan favourite, but he's a well-loved favourite by this hybrid audience who grew up reading him as a kid. You know, there's no way on... You know, there's no way on earth that he's uh, in the same league as McMahon or Bolland or O'Neill or Dave Gibbons or whatever. But there's this great affection for him. And that comes out of this weird mainstream taste that I suppose I'm always banging the drum for. Because, well, in the long run, um, there's a lot of them. Or there were. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right about the, the, the British sensibility as well. Our, our sort of geographical and cultural position. Mm. I mean, uh, when I was growing up, I would read... DC and Marvel superhero comics and Tintin and Asterix and Battle and 2000 AD. So it was this sort of melange of all these things. It's not a case of yeah. you're drawing from one particular area. It's quite unique, isn't it? Yeah, it's, yeah, I think so, yeah. And, and, it's, and I think it's the only way to really figure out how to develop and extend from that is if you're passionate about it. And everyone involved on 2000 AD now is quite passionate. And so they, they, they pick up on different bits and... Yeah, it still rolls along. Mm. Going back to battle, you put the the actual comic together as well as as, as writing on it. What was your your sort of thoughts and feelings going into it in terms of the kind of comic you wanted to make? I suppose looking back, and it, it actually it didn't seem that unusual at the time. We wanted to produce what, what would be seen, I suppose, now as a bit of a counterculture comic. In other words. Uh, what had happened was Warlord had been this huge success. It sold over a million. I mean, Battle did nowhere near the same figures. But we had one advantage over, over Warlord, and I've, I've spoken to the, um, you know, the, the, the editor of Warlord in recent years. They were very restricted by DC Thompson's. This, was the, this, if you like, was the downside of DC Thompson's. They were such a conservative company that originally they were the market leaders with Jackie and Bunty and and uh, Warlord, and they, they lost their position because they were stayed. And it's ironic that John and I, two ex-DC Thompson people, were probably largely responsible for that because we could actually do what we liked. And so what we wanted to do was something that was daring. So um, we would have, uh, say, a story, which actually the publisher suggested, uh, uh, Day of the Eagle, about a guy who is um, going to kill Hitler. And that was really frowned upon, the idea of an assassin, the idea of a sniper. Um, you know, as we speak, you know, you've got uh, American Sniper about to come out. But back then that was seen as, and perhaps with some justification, as why are you having a murderous character as a hero? You know, we, we had other stories like, for example, Rat Pack, uh, Dirty Dozen. Now, the relevance of that is that at that time, kids couldn't get to see the Dirty Dozen. You couldn't get it on. The videos hadn't appeared. So uh, Rat Pack was saying something. And what it was saying was that seditious characters, you know, uh, criminals, uh, could be heroes. And, and that was, I mean, nowadays, you might say, well, so what? But back <laughs> then, that was a big deal. And we didn't get all our stories right. And I, I think I produced my, more than my share of uh, turkeys because we were trying to find out what worked and what didn't work. Uh, we discovered, for example, uh, that stories with any kind of romance in them. When I say romance, I mean his like historical romance doesn't work. Male audience are not interested in, in that at all. And arguably not even a female audience. Romance doesn't work in, in, in comics, male or female. 
they probably are the odd exception, but I, I, generally it's grunge, it's downhill, it's, it's, it's Grange Hill or the equivalent. And the other thing that I think marked us out, which was definitely John and I, and probably perhaps me even more than, than John, I don't know, was there were no officers as heroes. Now, that's actually as relevant today as it was back then. It's almost like, don't get me started on that, because <laughs> we need to see ordinary people as heroes. There, you know, the, the, the media will proclaim the virtues of any number of officers as heroes. Uh, how often do you see an ordinary guy as, as a hero? So that was something I was very passionate about. And it actually wasn't that big a deal. I mean, the, the 60s had just ended. We were only, what, 1975, something like that. So we were, I just saw it as we were just catching up with the rest of the media. In other words, comics were lagging behind. Uh, I mean, you know, you've got all, these, all this incre incredible music revolution, incredible fashion revolution, and comics were, were at least 10 years behind the, the rest of the media. Yeah, I, I read Battle, mm. and it was, even as a child, very noticeable to me. Things like Charlie's War, the fact that you had working-class characters... Yeah to the fore as the central characters rather than peripheral characters behind a glorious uh, officer leading the charge. Yeah, and as I say, I, 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 I can get so passionate on this, I will, I will limit myself to one <laughs> minor rant on this. Look at the majority of fictional characters, uh, famous uh, text novels, you know, Sherlock Holmes and so on. Inevitably, uh, the characters are generally upper middle class. I mean, all the ones I grew up on, um, you know, James Bond... Uh, Sherlock Holmes and so on and where working class characters appear they're nearly always kind of you know the butt of jokes they're, they're, they're sort of the earth gov and all that kind of stuff Spivs and, yeah and, and, uh, <laughs> and that's fair enough but uh, it's actually rather insulting and it isn't a reflection of real life where uh, you know I, I live in a military town and I know many soldiers who will talk about how they often it's the ordinary soldiers who lead a situation and not the officers. And the opinion of, of the officer class is not always very flattering. Let's put it that way. And so, yeah, all, all that was very, very important. And something that, again, is, would probably lead us off on a tangent. So I just add this as a footnote. A lot of people who joined the army joined the army because they read Commando or War Picture Library or Battle. And I have very mixed feelings about that. So Charlie's War, if you like, was perhaps um, my, almost a penance, if you like. And Charlie's War, I'm delighted to tell you, is there are many readers of Charlie's War who came from military families and they didn't join up after reading Charlie's War. So it's like a result. Not every time. <laughs> there are some exceptions. In other words, one or two. But uh, for the most part, it, it, it is a true anti-war story in a way that is very different to a war is hell story, which, which has its place and is absolutely valid. But I, I always keep a distance from those kind of... I, I won't see Charlie's War, as it were, on the same venue as a war is hell story. Because, for example... Apocalypse Now, and which is a typical war is hell story. Uh, films like that were shown to American troops before they went into action on the first Iraq war. You know, that kind of, let's go get them, guys. Right, and, the Valkyries and the... Yeah, the, 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 yeah all that kind of stuff, yeah. 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 Uh, so the, the, the true test of an anti-war story is, one, 
is it readable? Is it entertaining? Because I mean, otherwise you're not going to. Why bother? You've got to. You've got to be entertained by it. You've got to be drawn into the characters, uh, and you don't want to feel like you're going to slit your wrists after reading it. But two, would it really make you think about war and if about alternatives to war? And, and I think Charlie Charlie's War passes that test. It's it's one of the very few um, war comic stories in the UK that does. Not many do, I'm afraid. Yeah. Now, my, my take on, on reading Charlie's War was I'd, I'd read, as you say, a lot of the, the sort of commando uh, mm. and battle which, which are very well done. Oh, yeah. yeah. They were, mm. I, I love them. They were fantastic yeah. comics. But the thing about Charlie's War was the, the, there was a, a, obviously a huge undercurrent of how horrible this situation was. Yeah. But it was never pushed upon you it was always that was the, the sort of the most terrifying thing about it how mundane the horror was the, just the reality of every single day they were just it was just mud and they were just rats and it wasn't the fact that people would see rats and they would run the rats would just be there and wouldn't be commented upon they were so just part of the, the, the wallpaper and it was so horrible and you know a, a huge part of that was, was obviously uh, Joe Calhoun's art I was about to is, say yeah. it's Joe's genius that he could draw something so relentlessly harsh year in year out that is such a colossal achievement and then the other thing from a story point of view it was it was very deliberate on my part to have a guy who is not obviously a, a subversive he's not obviously whatever you want to call it a lefty or no. an anarchist or whatever he even by the time he he leaves uh, the, the, the whole scenario in, in 1933 at the end of my story he still believes in king and country and yeah it's not it's not catch 22 it's not this character no. who's in the middle of it trying to get out of it he's just sort of like I guess I've he's got not to be here he's not a rebel but this is horrible and that actually and that's an interesting thing isn't it that he's not a rebel I mean Tardy does a very different type of story his characters aren't rebels per se, but they have that French revolutionary quality about them, that, that cynicism, which Charlie has a bit of cynicism, but you know deep down. He, he's he still believes. At, yeah, he That's still believes. Thing, and, and that makes him so endearing as a character. And you really, you know... And brings some real poignancy to the strip yeah, as well. Yeah, well, my heart goes out to him because... It's a, it's a tragedy because he, these horrible things, he lives through this mm, horrible situation, sees all loads of his friends die and suffering. And he still believes. And he still believes. And of course, it's a, it, it makes a... I mean, he's, he's not a bright guy. And of course, that comes into it as well. But at the same time, he has a certain um, native intelligence, if you like. And so, yeah, it raises all those kind of questions, which even now I would find myself... I mean, I, I have a real issue with this. It's, it's a big thing with me that uh, uh, there's a lack of recognition of working class achievement. And that's particularly the case in the anniversary years where I just did a... Um, a I, was going to say, I was about to say rant, and I <laughs> replaced it by saying a lecture at uh, Liverpool University. Was it billed as a rant? <laughs> it probably came out that way. Um, where I actually covered some of this ground, that there are working class heroes uh, in these anniversary years who are not acknowledged, and they made a fundamental difference to our history. In other words... There are many of us alive today because, you know, our, our grandfathers survived who wouldn't have done otherwise. And, and we don't know about them because the war has been very carefully choreographed because the government has spent millions on it. And they, I, I, I won't 
uh, I wouldn't mess around with my choice of words. I'd say the government paid shills wrote, you know, they write these um, biographies of Haig proclaiming him as a great leader. What you never hear about, for example, are the ordinary British soldiers who said, we're not going to Russia. The, in other words, most people today don't even know that Britain was at war with Russia in 1919. There were 20,000 or more soldiers. And the plan by Churchill and others was that it would be a major invasion. Now, what stopped that was, I think, up to 50 mutinies, which were partly about those typical working class, very understandable things. We want to go home. But it was also part of that was we're not going to Russia. OK, you told us rightly or wrongly that the Kaiser was the enemy. We are not going to fight. And the re now people like Paxman and um, Max Hastings and so on will play it down. But the facts are there that there were 50 British army mutinies. Now, we don't know who those people are. They're nameless heroes. But frankly, today, we owe them a huge debt. Because otherwise, what would have happened if they had said, king and country, OK, we'll go off and, um, you know, fight to, to depose the, the Bolsheviks? What would probably have happened is they, what would have, another 100,000 would have died. And so a lot of us wouldn't be here. Yeah, Russia so, is a very different prospect in terms yeah. of a, a land war at that time, isn't it? Yeah, and that, but they, they, they still tried, but in a, in a very limited way, because the British troops weren't doing it. And they play down the fact that British soldiers marched on Downing Street. Again, that's not remembered in, the, uh, in these anniversary years. They marched and, and Hague, uh, um, this is back in 1919, uh, wanted to shoot them in peacetime. Was there an element of the, the British soldiers not wanting to fight against what would have been seen at the time as a workers' revolution in Russia as well? That would have been an element. But I think even if it hadn't... That was an element, definitely. But even if that hadn't been there, it was just simply, well, we've had enough. Yeah. And they also would have recognised, uh, whatever their circumstances, they, they would have known that the, the war was not what it was proclaimed to be in 1914. And so all those things are, are missing. as frustration for me because... I, can't, I only got some of those things across in Charlie's War because with the internet, suddenly there's a, a lot more information. I, I drew everything I could, but there's a you know, there are only so many books around. Yeah. And even back in the 80s when there were lots of anti-war books around, I mean, today there aren't. I mean, you look at, there's been something like seven biographies of Haig in the last seven or eight years. That's a shill thing. You look at the titles, The Chief, The Good Soldier, The Architect of Victory. Come on, yeah. who's behind this? And there is a behind this because Britain is very good at propaganda. And even back in, uh, even as far back as the Great War, they were putting together journalists and fiction writers. John Buchan, the, the, the 39 Steps, which I loved as a kid. But he, he, was, the, um, he was the equivalent of Alistair Campbell. You know, he, he was the propaganda. He was the leader of the propaganda. He was bloody good at it. I would argue they're probably better. We always assume that somehow we're cooler, smarter today. I think they were, I think they were damn good at what they... They were spin doctors. John Buchan was a spin doctor. Yeah, a lot of the people who ended up writing seminal books about the wars, on, uh, First and Second World War, came from the British intelligence community. And that's Ian, Fle Ian yeah. Fleming, yeah. Dennis Wheatley. Yeah. The, and, and that's always played down. But yeah, I mean, nothing changes. And I, and I think this, it's a really important thing for me that... Uh, this, it's almost this assumption, well, we're smarter now. No, we're not. We, we get taken in by the same bullshit. 
they used the same devices. And I'd actually say they were, they were better then. I mean, you look at the propaganda posters. I mean, even you, you feel that pull. Even after 100 years, Daddy, what did you do in the Great War? And this guy looking guilty. You can feel that pull. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think modern recruiting is, is, is not... They haven't got the same propagandists that they, they had back then. Moving on to <laughs> yeah. action as a comic. Yeah. Again, it's another one where it's, it's a fresh take on genre. And again, there is a, a, a huge vein of, of working class representation that wasn't traditionally seen before. Things like um, Looking Out for Lefty, which is you know a football strip, a, a sort of mainstay of, of British comics up to that point. Yeah. But it's not Roy the Rovers by any stretch of imagination. He's no. not this noble character who's going to you know, get the winning goal and, and lift the child onto his shoulders. He's you know, very rough-edged, isn't he? And, and, he, and, he, and he has a girlfriend who's a kind of soccer hooligan, if right. I remember right. right. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, and again, kids are all okay unprecedented in terms of the portrayal of, of, of children as characters in comics as well. Yeah, that was, that was astonishing, yeah. That, that was, um, I think the, the two key stories kind of emerged, and as they emerged, I kind of, um, one was written by Ken Armstrong, and then I kind of took it over and developed it in response to what the readers was telling me, were telling me, and that was Hookjaw. And there was a kind of collective element there, because... John Sanders, the publisher, came along and he, he looked at uh, the first pages which were in colour and he took um, a paintbrush, dipped it in some red paint and said, it needs more blood. And I think he actually may even have put <laughs> it on the pa- Yeah, I think, I think so. And I mean, that, so we were all encouraging each other and, and I think that's why I suppose we, we all have to take some collective responsibility for its demise because... Um, but that was one. And then the other one was I, I walked into the office one day and I, and I said to uh, Jeff Kemp, who was, uh, was going to take over from me after the, 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 my job was to create a comic and then move on. And I said, we've got to do something like Rollerball. I said, because, you know, a death game. We've got to do a death game. And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he really cottoned on to what we were, what we were all about. And... Uh, and we sort of sat there staring at each other. And then I think Jeff literally came up with it from cold. He said, what about something like a... I don't know how we bounced it backwards and forwards, but he, he said something like, what about a giant uh, pinball? And I said, God, that's brilliant. And so, obviously, yeah, there were the flippers and the motorbikes and everything. And uh, we said, OK, let's give it to Tom Tully, who's, who's a great sports writer, who understands the, the rhythm of sport because he'd written, probably written Roy the Rovers and God knows what else. and um, But he can now do this with death. And Tom totally got it and started to horrify us with where it was going. <laughs> and then having kicked off with some rather dark artists, it then got really bad with Bellardinelli, who was just looking for a... And we, we were basically saying to him, and not just myself and not just Jeff, but his successors, which is almost a separate story... Um, because it, it went out of hand, and there was a reason for well, there were several reasons for it. Um, and Bellardelli just had the, I always remember this scene with a whole stream of intestines falling out of the guy after he'd been torn apart. And those two stories were the two uh, most popular stories. And I think it's significant as to why they were following movie trends. Hookjaw, undoubtedly the leader, and uh, it's just wonderful. 
and Ramon Sola. God, I mean, to make a fish look like look as competitive as Godzilla or something. I mean, you can understand a, a T Rex looking cool and so on. But when you even now, when you look at images of Hookjaw, he's a pretty scary mother, you know. Uh, <laughs> And so I think those two were the key stories. The other stories were, had the right tone, and some of them, I think, were, were very important. Uh, Dredger was very important to me personally, because I, here you had this situation. I mean, that was really my personal comment on all the fiction I'd grown up with. Because what did you have here? You had a situation where you have a working-class hero... And it actually lists his biography, including he went to a secondary modern or something. Then he became a mercenary. And his sidekick is a guy with a rather obvious name of Breed, which is unfortunate, but OK. And he went to Eton. You know, he's, he's David Cameron, you know, for God's sake. He, he went to Eton, uh, Oxford University. He was in the Brigade of Guards and everything. And here was the wonderful thing. He was a sidekick to a working class hero. And even to this day... I relish that thought. And anyone who knows my stuff will know that that's been reincarnated in Defoe, where Defoe is a leveller. He's a very working class guy. Uh, looks like Ray Winston. And he has this, in effect, sidekick, an upper class member of the British Secret Service, who is always saying, or in effect, a bit like Watson and Sherlock Holmes, oh my God, is that the answer, Defoe? <laughs> and he's going, yeah, Gov, that's, that's the one. And I think that's so important. Yeah. Probably not, to be honest, probably if you're in your 30s or 40s, it doesn't matter. I'd actually like kids to see that because when I was a kid around 11 or 12, I'd really like to see some working class heroes with some rather thick, and, and we, we all know that they're, I mean, there's plenty in the cabinet today, <laughs> for God's sake. So uh, I, I'd like to, I think, it, it, you know, kids really need to see that. Because it's a, it's a life-affirming thing. If you live on a council estate in the middle of nowhere and people say, well, uh, you know, you can't go to university now because you, you, know, you can't afford the fees or you're going to be in debt for the rest of your life, etc., etc. And you read about this guy who's, who's a working-class hero and who's, who's getting one of... I think that's life-affirming and there's not enough of them. I, I, in fact, I don't even know of any offhand. Uh, I'm sure they are out there somewhere. But it's not really a genre. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm the only one. I can't believe I'm the only one with a chip on my shoulder. <laughs> there are others. I mean, Halo Jones had that, that strong yeah. quality. Yeah, definitely. That, that in a different way, that, that feeling of I've got to get out. Yeah. That out thing it's is also, important. You, the whole concept is a very strong anti-authoritarian idea, isn't it? Which God, is yeah. so important. And, and, you know, in terms of battle and actually moving into 2018... That's a consistent theme throughout all of totally, the comics. Totally. And, and, you know, as I say, particularly in contrast to what had come before in terms of, of British comics, which were very, as we say, a lot of fun, some, some great stuff there, but were very firm in terms of the social class system ranking. You knew and, your yeah, place. Absolutely, yeah. And, and, and I suppose because I sort of grew up in, in that era, uh, I, I was sort of aware of that uh, know your place thing. And having been part of the whole having lived through the 60s, where you suddenly, everything was on its... I mean, that, that social revolution was just incredible. It was very exciting to be... to actually be part of it, to, you know, all those social divides that were crossed and so on. I think we sometimes overstate it, and we probably forget the fact that actually the 50s, in their own subtle way, 
it was a pretty dark and dodgy time in the 50s and um, I don't really know that much about it but I, from you know Soho and all around here yeah you know, absolutely that was um, that was an odd place and, and not necessarily the rather glossy image you know Soho revisited yeah, you know yeah. from the 50s yeah, some of those anecdotes have been cleaned up a bit. You know, it wasn't all poetry and beat <laughs> music and everything else. Well, it is a thing with the end of the Second World War, Britain's position in the world is transformed forever. The the empire ends and it's a case of Britain trying to find a new role for itself. And that does reflect itself in culture and society as well, yeah. doesn't it? That's the thing. Uh, it, including, you know, the, the sort of rise of working class consciousness and working class drama and the crumbling of not necessarily the ruling classes because as you say the cabinet that we have today is yeah. clear evidence there's not enough social it's mobility it's as bad as ever isn't but, it you yeah. know crumbling stately homes and you mm. know these noble families that are essentially broke and yeah so it, it is that there is this transitional period mm. that does revitalize a lot of, of art and culture i think yeah, yeah. The, 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 all that energy probably came through from uh, yeah, from forty five onwards. Uh, I guess yeah, social transition. Every, everything was possible. But as I say, it, it took the seventies for it to, to actually. I mean, it was seen through. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think I was rather surprised that it hadn't it hadn't reached uh, you know the, the audience, and and the audience could sometimes be quite conservative. I mean, going back to Romeo, for example. We all of us on the Romeo staff tried to do one or two what would now be seen as almost Grange Hill type kitchen sink romantic stories. One drawn uh, uh, by a very sort of modern British artist, and the audience actually preferred the dreamy. That was their hit, right? Because right. if you think about it, you know, say, and, and it's totally understandable. It's a form of escapism, so. The heroines in a, in Romeo and Jackie to a lesser extent all had this big Spanish hair. They had long eyelashes. They looked beautiful. So if you're an insecure teenager and you see this story about this gorgeous-looking girl meeting this unbearably handsome guy, <laughs> and they were all drawn by Spaniards, yeah, so yeah. of course everyone looks they're impossibly good looking. They've got hairy chests of the guys. I hasten to add, and. Uh, they actually preferred that escapism, and that's totally understandable. If you're reading something that would be almost the romantic equivalent of Grange Hill, it might be a bit of a bit of a shock. It didn't work. Maybe it wasn't the maybe they weren't the right stories because subsequently, at least in girls' comics as opposed to romantic comics, Grange Hill type stories did find their audience, and that is what girls wanted. But maybe as they got what we found, just as with everything else. There are rules on romantic comics, and one of them was, we want to escape. It's the Mills and Boone factor. No one, no one ever really talks about Mills and Boone, but as you doubtless know, they're, they're, they're still on the bookshelves, yep, and they probably outsell Chicklet and all the more <laughs> groovy uh, uh, stuff. And, of course, the only real difference from, from in the past is it used to be, you know, my Italian millionaire, now it's my Italian billionaire, or even trillionaire. Uh, I mean, Millionaire, so what? <laughs> <laughs> You're just a millionaire, what a shame. Yeah. Process is part of the Holdfast Network. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for other podcasts you might enjoy.